millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, you're listening to the new episode of Talking France, a podcast which will help you understand France, the French and everything going on in the country. On this week's show, we will find out why certain Paris cafes are banning customers from getting out their laptops. Are they really squatters who don't pay their way, as one cafe owner told us, or just a modern high-tech version of a traditional Paris cafe-goer? We'll hear from both sides of the row. This week, the leader of France's traditional centre-right party has been elected, but he isn't traditionally centre-right at all. We'll find out a little more about him, and on the subject of politics, we'll also hear how France's unofficial first lady, Brigitte Macron, actually fills her days. There is far more to Brigitte than just being Macron's former teacher, as she's often referred to. It's almost Christmas, so we need to talk about foie gras and why there are fears in France of a shortage. And also, why does France have such strict rules around swimwear, especially for men? I'm Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined, as always, by the locals' editor, Emma Pearson, journalist, Jen Mansfield, and politics expert, John Litchfield. But before we get started on all this, we should begin with football. Yes, on Wednesday evening, France beat Morocco 2-0 in the World Cup semi-final to book a place in Sunday's final against Argentina. There was huge excitement around the game in France and it's fair to say a fair amount of tension. France's interior minister had called in 10,000 police and gendarmes to try and avoid disorder and clashes between fans, including thousands of officers who lined the Champs-Élysées Avenue in Paris on Wednesday night. Now, for the most part, things seemed to pass off peacefully as celebrations went into the night, although there were reports of trouble and clashes in some French cities, including Montpellier in the south. You can get the latest news on the local.fr for the aftermath of the match. But there was a reason this game was about far more than just a place in the World Cup final. That's because France versus Morocco was about more than just football, Emma. Yes, they're countries that have quite a complicated relationship, shall we say, and that's because of both history and also demographics. So let's look at the history first. France colonised Morocco uh, back in 1912. It ruled it as a protectorate, dividing the country up with Spain for almost 50 years before Morocco gained its independence in 1956. Now, both the actual colonisation and the gaining of independence was less violent than in neighbouring Algeria, which had this exceptionally brutal war before it finally won its independence in 1962. But nonetheless, this colonial past has left France and Morocco with a, a complicated relationship, which does sometimes still flare up over certain issues. France's foreign minister, for example, is currently trying to smooth out the latest dispute, which is to do with uh, Morocco's actions in the Western Sahara and France's imposing of a visa limit on Morocco. So there are these sort of temporary tensions. But linked to the colonial history is the fact that Morocco has this huge diaspora population. There's about 5 million Moroccan citizens who live outside of Morocco and of them, 1.5 million of them live in France. It's the country with the largest number of, uh, of Moroccans outside Morocco. And of course, that's not including French citizens who have Moroccan ancestry. So you can kind of see this influence of generations of Moroccan people in France in things like the culture 
culture, the buildings, the art, and of course, food. If you want probably the French equivalent of what we might say is the, the British high street curry house, that would be the couscouserie, which are little cafes and restaurants that serve North African cuisine, couscous, tagine, kebabs. You can find them in pretty much any small town. They're very delicious and usually exceptionally good value. But the Moroccan population itself and those with Moroccan family links tend to be concentrated in the big cities, especially Paris and Marseille. And that means that Morocco football matches are a pretty big deal, even when France isn't playing. Indeed they are. And if you're interested in this subject and want to read more about it, we have an excellent article by our politics expert, John Litchfield, on our website under the title French, Moroccan or both. In truth, it's more complicated than politicians will admit. You can find that article on the local.fr. Now, just a reminder before we go on that the best way to stay up to date with everything going on in France is to become a member of The Local and get unlimited access to all our articles on travel news, bureaucracy, new laws, politics, culture and much, much more. Listeners of the podcast can take advantage of a discount by going to thelocal.fr slash podcasts slash podcast offer. Right, on we go, guys. What are we talking about in France this week? We better start with a man named Eric. No, not Cantona, but Eric Ciotti. I hope I've pronounced his name correctly. Emma, who is he? Why does he matter? He is the man who's just been elected leader of Les Républicains. That's the political party of ex-presidents, including Charles de Gaulle, Jacques Chirac and Nicolas Sarkozy. The party itself is usually described as centre-right, but Ciotti is definitely to the right of the party. And in fact, his position on issues like immigration identity and Islam are really very hard to distinguish from those of Marine Le Pen. Now, Les Républicain candidate Valérie Pécresse, who actually beat Eric Ciotti to the nomination of the 2022 French presidential election, only got 4.78% in the first round of voting. Is this party even still relevant? Well, they're partly important because of what's happening in the parliament right now. Although, as you said, they did extremely badly in the presidential election, they did slightly better in the parliamentary elections and they have 89 MPs in the French parliament. So they can be a, a balance of power in the deadlocked parliament if they ally with either Macron's centrist bloc or the right alliance. But they're also important because of their history. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the party of ex-presidents like Chirac and Sarkozy. And from 1958 to 2017, they, along with the centre-left party Socialiste formed the duopoly of French politics. So these two parties basically just swap power back and forth between them at periodic intervals, just like the Conservatives and Labour in the UK or the Republicans and Democrats in the US. But in 2017, along came a young kid by the name of Emmanuel Macron, and he smashed that duopoly. Not only did he get elected with this new centrist party that he created, but the two traditional parties, the Republican, who we're talking about, and Parti Socialiste, were pretty much destroyed. They came third and fifth, respectively, and neither of them has ever really recovered, although they do tend to do a bit better in local and parliamentary elections. But in the, the most recent election, as you mentioned, they came fifth and tenth, and they both got less than 5% of the vote in the first round, which was just a, an absolute humiliation for these two parties that had dominated French politics for 60 years. So what we have instead is this electoral landscape that now seems to be divided into three roughly equally sized blocks. You've got the Macron centrists in the middle, you've got the far right voters, and you've got the voters on the left who'll pick one of the far left candidates. And Les Républicains are really just kind of scrambling to find a place for themselves in this new landscape. And it does look, with the election of the extremely hardline Ciotti, it kind of looks like the party has decided that its place is with the far right. Although we probably should point out that at present they're saying that Ciotti won't be their presidential candidate in 2027. His job is just to lead the party and to do the admin. 
Okay, and to find out more about Ciotti and what his election means for Les Republican Party and French politics in general, I turned to John Litchfield, who joined us on the line from Normandy. John, just explain to us what the election of Eric Ciotti means for the Republican Party. Well, I mean, you have to remember that Eric Ciotti, who was a deputy for, for Nice in the South, was regarded as a kind of right out on the extreme of the party, a maverick. But, you know, everyone says he's actually a very nice man if you meet him, which I've never have. But his his views on anything to do with race, security, immigration are actually indistinguishable from those of Le Pen. And he said before the election last time that he would certainly, if given the choice between Zemmour, uh, Eric Zemmour, the other far-right leader, and Macron vote for Zemmour. So that place is where he is. Ciotti says he's going to restore the strength of the, of the Republican, which was reduced to less than 5% in the election in April has become a kind of marginal party, really, um, because the centre under Macron has taken over part of its territory, the far right under Le Pen, especially as the Moors taken over another part of its territory, so it finds itself really squeezed down, is going to have to learn to be a politician. He's always been a sort of mouth, you know, until now. And he's there are signs that he's willing to compromise now he's in the leadership. And it's quite possible that there's going to be another big split in the Republican in the next uh, little while. Now, each week on Talking France, we like to introduce some French personalities in the news. This week, we're going to talk about Brigitte Macron. We all know Brigitte Macron. She's France's unofficial first lady, of course. We see her a lot in pictures by the president's side or behind him in the background. And she's just welcomed the Ukrainian president's wife, Olena Zelenska, to the Elysee. She's almost ever present, but she doesn't get a lot of publicity. Or we don't know much about what she actually does. Emma, tell us more about what Brigitte Macron does during her day. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Brigitte Macron in this one because she's one of these people that everyone thinks they know all about and really they only know one thing about her. And yes, OK, the story of how she met her husband is undeniably fascinating and shocking, but I think she's actually a more interesting character than that. So she and Emmanuel Macron, they've been married since 2007, although they've been together as a couple for a lot longer than that. And since 2017, she's been in the role of president's wife. And unlike the US, first lady isn't actually an official position in France. So it's really up to the individual women how they play this role. And yes, it is always women because France has never had either a female or a gay president. So since his election, she's mostly dedicated herself to charity work, which is quite classic for first ladies in France. She's patron of a charity called Pièce Jaune that works with hospitalised children. She's president of the French Hospitals Federation. She's done a lot of work around education, cyberbullying. But those of who are sort of in the know about French politics tend to regard her role as a lot more significant than that because essentially she's reportedly one of the very few people that Macron actually listens to and takes advice from and it's really striking that if you look at sort of photos or videos of official events visits speeches that Macron's doing she's always there in the background sort of issuing him advice Macron himself has credited her with improving his public speaking skills his presentation his oratory since she was after all a drama teacher when they first met yeah she's very hands-on isn't she for a kind of unofficial first lady as you suggested now look you did mention this story about how they first met i think it's worth reminding listeners yeah, I mean, <laughs> it is quite the story. So the couple met in Amiens in 1992. Emmanuel Macron was 15 and he was in the same class at school as Brigitte's oldest daughter. Brigitte, on the other hand, was 39 and she was a drama teacher in the same school. The following year, after putting on a school play in collaboration, it became known that the two were involved in a romantic relationship, which was 
obviously a huge scandal in Amiens at that time. Brigitte lost her job and her marriage broke up and Emmanuel's parents sent him to Paris for his final year at school to try and split up this couple. But They stayed together through all of that. In 2007, they eventually got married. And by that time, Brigitte's three adult children had accepted the relationship. And in 2017, they actually campaigned for their stepfather. And they are, by all accounts, now a close family. And a very happy couple, it seems. Fair play to them. Thanks, Emma, for that. Now, each week on Talking France, we like to get out and about around the country. This week, we're heading to the Perigord, an historic region of the southwest, basically where Dordogne is these days. And we're talking about foie gras, that controversial but classic French Christmas dish. Jen, are there going to be shortages this year? Please explain more. Yeah, so this delicacy, which is made from fatty livers of force-fed ducks and geese in France, is a Christmas and New Year's staple. Usually it's served on toast or brioche or even pain d'épices, which is gingerbread. Uh, But this year might be a bit different. So a bird flu outbreak has severely impacted the duck and goose population in France. Over the last two winters, millions of birds have needed to be culled. And this has forced farmers to have to resort to a new technique. So normally farmers use male birds, uh, but this year they're using female birds because of the shortage of birds that were culled. And the resulting liver does taste the same, but the female duck and goose livers are smaller and harder to work with, um, and so there's less of it. And that means that the foie gras market, which is already dealing with higher production costs due to the war in Ukraine and inflation going on generally, is going to have to increase costs again. So this year, the French will still have foie gras on the table at Christmas, but it'll likely be a bit more expensive than it normally is. What about other places, or is this a kind of France-specific tradition? And just remind us, why is it so controversial? Yeah, so this is a very French-specific tradition. Around 60% of all foie gras in the world is produced in France. And not only do other countries not produce it, many have even banned imports of it too because of animal rights concerns. So for many people, foie gras is not a delicacy. Uh, It's just an example of animal abuse. The birds are held in small cramped cages, and as we mentioned, to produce foie gras, the bird's livers need to be enlarged, which is done by inserting a tube into the bird's mouth and then pumping corn feed down their throats. So from about age eight weeks old, the birds are force-fed, and then eventually at the end of the process, they're slaughtered. So the production of foie gras is banned in the UK, Germany, Italy, Norway, Poland, Turkey, and Israel. And in the US, on a state and local level, California and New York City have both banned it. There you go. That's why foie gras is a controversial dish outside France, at least, perhaps not within it, or at least not down in the Southwest. Thanks, Jen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. For over 150 years, Parisian cafes have offered a space for artists, authors and everyday people to meet, drink coffee, share ideas or just sit and think. 
These days, they're also home to the scores of remote workers who are more likely to open a laptop than a novel and are more likely to ask for a power source than a light for a cigarette. But taking a computer out in a Parisian cafe these days can be a risky move as cafe owners clamp down on computer use in an apparent effort to preserve the essence of cafe culture. Jen, you've been looking into this row. It first came to our attention on social media when some writers told of how they'd been asked to put away their laptops. What is going on in Parisian cafes, Jen? Yeah, so I went out and I spoke to several cafe owners around Paris just to get an idea of what's going on here. And I was a bit surprised by what I found out. So first of all, I kept noticing that mostly the more traditional style French cafes and brasserie were totally okay with laptop usage. Some of them even offer people Wi-Fi. But then on the other hand, it was mostly smaller, more artisanal-style coffee shops and espresso bars that were putting into place restrictions on laptops. Uh, I spoke with one coffee shop owner, Jeff Hargrove, from Fringe, which is located in the Marais, uh, to find out why he decided to say no to laptops overall. And Jeff basically told me that for him, the most important thing is creating a welcoming atmosphere where people are able to talk and communicate and maybe meet at the cafe. And in his mind, laptops impede that. Now, this article you've written for the local .fr is available on our site, and it features some of Jeff's remarks. Some of them stood out for me. This is what he said. He said, I'm not against laptops, but I am against the minority of users who will sit down for four or five hours with the cheapest drink. That's not respectful to the space. So the decision came about because of those few who do that. We call them squatters. Now, Jen, I work in a cafe quite a lot, a traditional Parisian cafe. They're fine with me, you know, having my laptop open for two or three hours. I do have plenty of coffee. But when it comes to lunchtime, they put down a knife and fork and a napkin to give me the message that I need to clear out. It's quite obvious that, you know, my, unless I'm going to eat, it's time to go. Now, other cafe owners were a bit more sympathetic to the idea of people working than Jeff. Is that right? Yeah, um, there were some people that felt similarly to Jeff though I didn't talk to anyone else who had completely banned laptops outright. Other shops were still hoping to preserve a more welcoming or community-oriented atmosphere, and they maybe were doing so by asking people to minimize their time on computers, so maybe working on your computer for only an hour, or computers allowed during the week but not on weekends. And then, of course, there were several cafes that were quite laptop-friendly, and these, like I mentioned, tended to be more the bistro, brasserie-style places to begin with. So maybe they have a little bit less of an appeal to the work-from-home crowd who might be looking to work in a cozy cafe with nicer coffee. But overall, these cafes were laptop positive, even the more bistro brasserie type places. I spoke to one cafe owner at a place called Le Sancerre in the Marais, and he told me that he just sees laptops as the new iteration of newspapers. He said that people have always come to sit down to read the newspaper in Paris cafes, and to him, there really isn't much of a difference between doing that on a laptop and doing that on a piece of paper. Yeah, I enjoyed a tweet by one uh, Parisian cafe goer who was upset about this kind of move against laptops. He says, why does it cost five euro an hour to put up your laptop at a random Paris cafe when it's perfectly fine to sit and read a book for eight hours drinking one espresso? I don't get the dynamics of it all. He posted a picture of a sign that says, no laptop, pas de co-working, suite à de nombreux abus, which was translated to due to massive abuse, which sounds <laughs> way over the top. Now, I think one of the reasons why people end up in cafe working in Paris is because they all live in, everybody lives in such small apartments, but it's, it's also 
a bit more about this kind of Paris cafe culture. They're just nice places to be. Yeah, so that's what I noticed the conversation continuing to return to with a lot of these cafe owners. It's this original idea of, of cafe culture in Paris. And everyone seemed to agree on cafe culture being about community. So giving people a place to come, to sit, to chat. But they had different opinions on whether laptops hinder or help that. I think it's difficult to land on one exact definition of Parisian cafe culture, but it has been a phenomenon for generations for people to go to Paris cafes and hang out, talk, debate, exchange, read, etc. And cafes have been around in Paris since the 1600s. Uh, they were hugely important during the French Revolution because they served as a democratic meeting spot where people from different social groups could meet and talk politics. In the 1920s, Paris cafes were home to artists and authors like Ernest Hemingway and philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre. And I talked to this one cafe owner and I think he summed it up in a nice way. He told me about how cafes in Paris play a big part in the social life for all Parisians, regardless of their age group. So he was saying that you could have an older man smoking a cigarette outside, and then just a few tables down, you've got some high schoolers that are doing their homework together. Yeah, I think your point about the history of working in cafes is is an interesting one because these days I've noticed some cafes even market themselves based on the history of who has worked there. You know, places like the Café de Flore, they uh, they have little plaques on the table that their famous patrons used to sit at. So, Ernest Hemingway, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, James Joyce, Emile Zola, Oscar Wilde, to name just a very tiny fraction of the people have all worked in Paris cafes. And really, I think the only reason they didn't use laptops is because they hadn't been invented yet. I don't really work in cafes myself very often but for me the absolute nicest thing about the traditional Paris cafe is that it's perfectly okay to linger in them in fact it's encouraged and I think one of the greatest pleasures of living in Paris is to head to a cafe with a good book and just while away a couple of hours with a, a pot of tea or a glass of wine maybe reading people watching generally loitering very true thanks for that Emma I guess the lesson is you just got to keep a lookout for these signs when you get your laptop out and just be careful maybe ask you know are we at that point you got to ask if you can get your laptop out I think if you don't hang out in the hipster coffee places in the Marais, you're probably all right, actually. Yeah, we shouldn't overplay <laughs> this problem. I think it's pretty safe to get your laptop out in a Paris cafe. Thanks, Jen. Really interesting argument brewing there in Paris. Certain things are synonymous with France. Emma, can you name one? Strikes. Jen? Uh, cafes. <laughs> okay, good one. Yeah, easy. Another one for me is tight swimming trunks that are often referred to as speedos or skimps, perhaps. Budgie smugglers. Budgie smugglers <laughs> is is a term that's often used as well. Uh, do you want to explain budgie smugglers? <laughs> no, let's move on. Anyone. <laughs> now, anyone who's been to a swimming pool in France will know what I'm talking about because the French have fairly strict rules about what can be worn. Jen, for the benefit of our readers, can you just fill us in a bit about the rules of what you can wear in a French swimming pool? Yeah, so if you want to go swimming in a municipal pool in France, so that is one that's owned by local authorities, a hotel or campsite, they can set their own rules. So this is more like the Marie. In France, there are a fair amount of rules that you need to follow. So first, you have to shower or rinse off at least before you get into the pool. And then there are some rules about how you can dress. So you have to wear a swim cap. And ladies, you cannot go topless, unfortunately. But men are required to be a bit more revealing. So no baggy trunks are allowed. You have to wear a Speedo. This might sound a bit ridiculous, uh, but in theory, the rule exists for hygiene and 
and, quote, public order purposes, according to the French Pools Guide. And that guide also says that swim trunks are not allowed in an effort to, quote, reduce pollution of the pools, so hair, sweat, urine residue, etc., in order to, quote, preserve the quality of the water. And the guide also says that long shorts tend to have pockets, and people often forget to empty out their pockets, so you might have tissues or coins or papers falling into the pool. But swim trunks are not the only bathing suit that are banned in a lot of French pools. The burkini, or the modest bathing suit that covers much of the body and it's preferred by some Muslim women, uh, is also not allowed in most municipal pools in France, though the rationale doesn't seem to have as much to do with hygiene. Yes, okay. I mean, I think I go swimming a lot. I think that it's a bit more flexible than it used to be. You you know, you refer to um, speedos, those kind of classic, very tight, small, skimpy swimwear. Do you know what they're actually called in France? Uh, no. It's a slip de bain. Now, you can wear a slip de bain. In fact, you see many people wearing slip de bain. You also wear, you know, tighter, longer shorts. You know what they're called in French? Uh, Dead easy. Short de bain? A short, short de bain. De bain. Really good, <laughs> and you can wear what I wear, actually, which is really long, almost knee-length, tight shorts for swimming, which are called, I didn't know this until today. Uh, genou, something with your knees. <laughs> no, they're called a jammer de bain. But anyway, you know, you can, as long as they're tight, basically, it's to stop blokes playing football or going for a run and then going in the pool, you know, with kind of baggy, sweaty shorts that they've been playing football with. It's kind of common sense. Although I kind of fell foul of this once. I think probably my first trip to a French swimming pool, I basically got changed, jumped in the pool. The whistle went because they are really strict French lifeguards. And he's like, get out of the pool. I'm like, why? He's like, you know, you've got your shorts on. You need proper trunks. I had to run to the shop around the corner, came back straight away, jumped in the pool again. The guy blows his whistle again. I'm like, what have I done now? get out of the pool like what you need your hat and it's like oh god yeah you need a blooming a swimming hat in france which is not the case in england i think you have to you have no to you need a, a, a bonnet de bain a bonnet de bain exactly luckily they sold them in a vending machine so i didn't have to go back to the shop next door but yeah anyone going swimming in france be aware of the tight rules and many also, have fallen foul in the past shower shower thoroughly on the side um i was once sent back uh, at the swimming pool for not showering sufficiently thoroughly on the side of the pool this was shortly after pools had reopened after the lockdown so they had like some extra rules but I'd gone for a swim I'd had my shower on the poolside I was just about to get in the pool and the man blew his whistle and shouted at me and said madame please go back and wash thoroughly and I've honestly never been so mortified in my life that sounds fair enough to me what what I was really insulted about was when I was about to jump in the canal pool the guy told me to have a shower I'm like I'm gonna jump in the canal are you saying I'm dirtier than the Parisian canal (laughs) but yeah he stuck to his guns like these guys don't mess about you know you really have to follow their rules thanks Jen and Emma for clearing that up. Before we wrap up this week's episode, we like to offer listeners a few life hacks for living in France. Emma, do you want to fire away with your tip of the week? Yeah, we were talking about couscous earlier, which made me think about this. But did you know that the Grand Mosque in Paris, as well as being obviously a place of worship and a very beautiful building, also has a restaurant? I did not know that. Yeah. Tell us more. It serves an absolutely delicious range of sort of North African style cuisine, including range of different tagines, couscous and brick, which are gorgeous little deep fried phyllo pastry parcels, usually with an egg or a tuna inside. They're really good. And in fact, if you've got an afternoon to spare, the mosque also houses a hammam, so you can go for a steam bath and a massage. And after that, have a mint tea and some sweet pastries. It's really a, a great place to go visit. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it really sounds worth checking out. Jen? Well, this might not be quite as relaxing as the steam bath at the hammam, 
Um, but my recommendation is to start planning for the winter solds early. So as you may know, France has two state-sanctioned sales periods in the year, uh, and the winter sold is coming up in January. So my recommendation is to go out and kind of get a scan of the different things that you might be interested in buying so that you know what you're looking for when the solds happen. I personally am looking for a new backpack, and so I've had my eye on the same backpack for several months, and I'm very ready for it to be marked down during the solds. Okay, thanks, Jen. I guess my one is about driving again. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm about to drive to the UK. I always do this. I try and think about where to top up with petrol. And in France, I think basically you're best off going to supermarkets. They tend to have the cheapest prices, avoid motorway service stations. But there are a lot of apps and websites now where you can actually, you know, interact with and, and search for the cheapest petrol near you. I'm not going to read them all out because there's quite a few of them. If you go to the local type in where to find the cheapest fuel when you're driving in France, we list some of the best apps and websites to go to if you really want to find the cheapest fuel in your area. But Emma, I think it's best to stick to supermarkets in general, isn't it? Uh, yes, but my top tip for this would be that if you're going to, obviously the petrol on the auto routes is the most expensive, but if you're going to pull off the auto route to find a supermarket that's cheaper, make sure you definitely know where you're going so that you don't, to take a completely random example, end up going round and round the tour one-way system having a massive row with your partner because that won't help you at all. It feels like you're speaking from experience here, right? <laughs> completely random example. Are you still together with this rand- this partner who you got around? You got over it? It's true, though. There is. You're obviously going to... Yeah, if you go looking for fuel, you're obviously going to spend more fuel looking for the fuel. That's the lesson here, isn't it? Well, quite often on the auto routes, they, they have big signs that say, oh, you know, petrol, turn off left. And so you mm. think it's right there, but then they're actually much further away than uh, than you think. So uh, check it on the map first yeah. would be my tip. Check it on the map. Check it on the local.fr. We have plenty of articles on where to find the cheapest fuel in France. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back with more next week.